And now a reading from Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In a book entitled All In, the author Mark Batterson writes these words. Most people in most churches think that they are following Jesus, but I'm not so sure. They think they are following Jesus, but the reality is this. They have invited Jesus to follow them. Those words kind of struck me that uh, that's kind of the way it it so often is. Uh, So often, we want to make Jesus like us and, uh, and want his stamp of approval on, on, on our lives. You know, we have uh, Republican Jesus and Democrat Jesus. You know, we have capitalist Jesus and socialist Jesus. And we have prosperity Jesus and we have poverty Jesus. The point is we have a tendency to make Jesus more like us and to allow Jesus to make us more like him. But when Jesus calls us to follow him, He uses graphic imagery like dying and carrying a cross and denying oneself and selling all your possessions and and forsaking your family. His call to follow him is really a call to radical change and not simply accommodation. And this is what we see in our passage today. Jesus reveals to us here the kind of Messiah that he is, one that will be put to death and rise again. And then he calls us to follow him with wholehearted devotion. And then he goes on to build his case for why we should follow him. So that's what we want to look at today, and I've entitled our passage simply, Following Jesus. Now, it's been several weeks since we were last in Matthew. Actually, we go back to November. We had Thanksgiving, then El Salvador, and then our Christmas series, and, and so on. So here we are in the new year. A few things just to, uh, to remember and keep in mind. Jesus, remember, the, the, the book of Matthew, Jesus came to present himself as Israel's Messiah, the one promised from the Old Testament who would bring the blessing of God to the nation of Israel. He validated his claim by the many miracles that he performed, which gave evidence, clear evidence, of the power and presence of God in his life. He was widely accepted 
and embraced by the people, but opposition continued to grow by the religious establishment as he's challenged their self-righteous traditions. In chapter 16 in the book of Matthew marks a strategic turning point in the ministry of Jesus. He asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the group, says with great confidence, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is ecstatic. It is for this which it is this for which he had been laboring with his disciples for two years. He wanted the disciples to be absolutely convinced of who he is. And now that they have come to that place of being convinced, he now begins to unfold his plans. And he first tells them that he is going to build a new community. On this rock, I will build my church. It will be a new community, a new assembly, a new Israel in some sense, if you will, the church. And it will now be made up of people from all nations, not just of Israel. And now Jesus is going to reveal something to them that will knock them back on their heels. Just as they think they have figured out who Jesus is, he drops a bombshell on them. And so we begin today with an unimaginable revelation. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and raised up on the third day. The disciples had come to believe that Jesus was indeed God's Messiah. The one prophesied that the Old Testament had finally come. And in some way, they believed that he was the Son of God. They didn't have a full understanding at this point of the doctrine of the Trinity, but he knew Jesus had a unique sonship relationship with God and that he had come to rule and restore God's blessings to Israel. He would rule and he would reign. But now Jesus is telling them that he is going to be killed. The religious leaders, he tells them, are going to put him to death. This is unimaginable for them. It's, it's inconceivable. How can he be killed? That, it, it just doesn't make sense. That would be a total defeat of God's plan, what they think they have come to understand. It would be a defeat of God's covenant with Israel because Jesus was the son of David in fulfillment of God's covenant. And that would be a defeat of God's covenant. And, and I don't even think they heard that he was going to be raised on the third day. I think that went just right past them. All they heard was that he's going to be put to death. This was inconceivable to the disciples. It was unacceptable. But do you see the context of this revelation? Matthew tells us that it was at this point, 
following the confession of Peter and the disciples that now Jesus begins to teach them of his death. Jesus reveals his death only after the disciples have come to fully believe that he is the Messiah of God. They had to be convinced of his person before they could ever begin to accept this reality. I mean, just think, if, if he'd started out that way saying, come follow me, and by the way, I'm going to be killed in, in a couple of years from now. I mean, <laughs> it just wouldn't have worked. He, they had to be convinced of who he is before he could introduce this new reality. And I want you, one more thing. I want you to notice the little word must. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. That little word must, it points to divine necessity. Jesus says, I must do this. This is why I came. You don't understand it now, but this is why I came. This is part of the Father's plan. They don't understand it then, but they would come to understand it later. Well, how do the disciples react? Oh, yeah, cool. We're good with that. Good. <laughs> Not quite. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter was beside himself. It speaks most likely, again, as a representative of the other disciples and their similar reaction to what Jesus had just said. And he couldn't believe what Jesus is saying. And, and it says, Peter rebukes Jesus. I mean, this is a audacious response on the part of Peter. He's a, it, it, the, the word means to assume authority over someone. And, and in our translations, at least the one I'm in the NAS, it says, he rebuked him saying, God forbid it, Lord. Well, <laughs> literally the words God forbid, the word God isn't in there, and the word forbid isn't in there. In, in the Greek, it's two words, mercy, and then in the Greek, it's one word, but in English, it's two words, to you. Literally, it's Peter says, mercy to you. It means like, may God have mercy on you. What are you saying? You know, like, Lord have mercy. Can you, I can't believe you're saying this. How could you even think of something so awful? There's no way Peter is saying that that would ever happen. Verse 23, but he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is saying that Peter's opposition to the idea of Jesus dying is the same mentality of Satan as Satan. Satan is always opposing the work of God. And Peter's resistance to the death of Jesus is in reality opposing the work of God. Jesus said, Peter, you're a stumbling block to me. Again, the thinking of Peter. I mean, Peter's well-intended. I mean, we have to give him credit for that. He's well-intended and, he, and he thinks he's helping, but, but Jesus is saying, Peter, in reality, you're a hindrance to me. You're a hindrance to what I'm doing. Peter, you don't understand it now, but the redemption of the world is at stake. 
Peter in his zeal, but also his ignorance, is hindering the work of Jesus. And he goes on to say, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interest. What a clear illustration of how the ways of God are often so different from the ways of mankind. Man's interests, the things that Peter was focused on, are things like glory and honor and power and success and ruling and reigning. He's focused on those things. That's what Jesus is going to do. Peter says, but Jesus says, you're focused on man's interest, but not God's interest. God's interest are things like redemption, sacrifice, humility, forgiveness. These were the things that Jesus was about. Peter did not understand these things yet. He would, but not yet. So this being true, that Jesus will be a crucified Messiah and Savior, what it means to follow Jesus then takes on new meaning. And that's what Jesus teaches now. The nature of true discipleship. Verse 24. Nature of true discipleship. Then, verse 24, in light of this shocking and radical teaching that he's going to die and rise on the third day, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let's pause there. If you want to be my follower, Jesus says, in light of what I've just said now, if you, if you still want to be my follower, he's not talking about salvation here, that this is what a person must do to be saved, because he's talking to the disciples who have already believed in him and made that great confession of faith. Salvation has been and always will be by faith alone. But Jesus is, re is going to require something here that will go well beyond faith. He's talking to them, talking to us as believers in him and what he requires of those who would now follow him. And he gives three criteria here in this passage. He gives three criteria for being a true follower of Jesus, for true discipleship. First one, if you want to come after me, if you want to be my follower, let him deny himself. Now, this is not a self-denial in the sense that God wants you to pick out what is most pleasurable in your life and then deny yourself that pleasure. Or that we, or that we have to deny ourselves any earthly enjoyment. Several years ago, well, actually, when I was in seminary, I had a friend that was uh, a good athlete. Actually, we had played football together at Alma, and he later became a Christian and came down to go to school at Dallas Seminary. And he was a good athlete, and, and he loved to play golf. I loved to play golf now, but I didn't take it up until I was <laughs> well older. But he loved to play golf, then, and, and he was, and he was a, he was a very good golfer. And, and he just, he loved 
game of golf. But one day, I saw him at seminary, and he says, Ken, I've given it up. I said, gave up what? He says, I've given up golf. I said, why? He said, because I want to deny myself. He was denying himself one of the things, if not the things, that he loved the most. And he thought that was what Jesus was asking here when he says, let him deny himself. Pick out the thing that you love the most and deny yourself that pleasure. Well, he later come to understand that that's not what Jesus was asking, and he, and he loves to play golf today. Jesus is talking about something much more radical and meaningful than simply denying ourselves earthly pleasure. He is talking about denying yourself as the one who is ultimately in charge of your life. It means that we no longer live just for ourselves or for our own personal self-interest or our own personal agenda. It means we choose to submit ourselves in our lives to follow Jesus and to follow the will of God in every area of our life. It is to deny ourselves as the one we live for, and instead we choose to live for Jesus. It is yielding our life to Jesus, surrendering our life, surrendering our plan, surrendering our hopes to Him. It's saying, okay, you've got all of me. I'll follow you. You've, you've got me. All of me. I'll follow you. I'll live my life for you. This is what Jesus asks. Second criteria for following Jesus in true discipleship is to take up his cross. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross. Now, we often use this expression in referring to maybe a personal problem that, you know, this is my cross to bear in life. You know, it could be any number of things, any kind of affliction, could be illness, could be a wayward child, but this is my cross to bear. But Jesus is not talking about here, about a cross that we must bear. The imagery Jesus uses is really quite startling. And it wouldn't have been understood by those of his day. When a person was condemned by the Romans to die by execution, that person, that individual, was forced to carry the cross beam of the cross to the place of execution, just like Jesus did when he was being crucified, he was forced to carry, instead of forced to carry the cross, more likely the vertical stakes are already there at the place of execution, and they are required to carry the cross beam. It's strapped to their back, and they have to carry that cross beam to the place of execution. And then they'll be attached to it either by nails or ropes, and then elevated and, and put on the, the vertical beam. <clears throat> and so the expression... To take up one's cross is therefore a picture of a man being put to death. 
It's a picture of death and dying. It's not a reference to bearing burdens. It's a reference to dying. Now, is he saying that, well, we, we, we therefore must become a martyr? We must die? Not necessarily. That may be part of it for some, yes, but not necessarily. It's broader than that. He is saying that we must, again, we must die to the control over our life. We die to our own interests, our own agenda, and render the control and direction of our life to Jesus Christ. We die to ourselves, and we allow Jesus to set the agenda for our life. And then the third criteria for following Jesus, he simply says, and then follow me. It's interesting that the first two criteria are in a a, a verb tense that kind of conveys, you know, let's say kind of a decisive action. And then this third one, follow me, it's in the present tense. Then just come and continue to follow me. Having denied ourselves control over our life, having died to our own agenda and self-interest, we now focus on Jesus and follow him in faith and complete obedience, seeking to live like him, seeking to obey his word. And this becomes, following him becomes our consuming passion to completely, unreservedly, wholeheartedly follow Jesus. But why should we? Is it really worth it? We're trading something that we can feel and see and experience now, you know, this life and what we might want to do with our life here for something that may not be so quite, quite so tangible. Is it really worth it? Well, Jesus then sets forth what I call the logic of following Jesus. Calls us to follow him. And now he's going to present his case for why we should follow him in true discipleship. And he gives three reasons why we should. The first reason, verse 25. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. <laughs> this is one of those paradoxical sayings by Jesus, like, what on earth does he mean here? <laughs> well, let's look at the first half. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. All right. To save your life. What does it mean? Jesus says, if you want to save your life, what does it mean to save your life? It means to hold on to your life. What you want to do and the way you want to live and, and the control of your life now. I want to live my life my way. And if we choose that, Jesus said we lose. You want to save it, save your life now, we actually lose. We lose out on the richer experience of life that Jesus offers now and in eternity. But then, but then he goes on, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. 
If you save it, you lose it. But if you lose it, you find it. If we give up on the control of our life now and give it over to Jesus, then, he says, we will find life indeed. We will have a richer experience of life now and in eternity. How is it a richer life now? Well, it may not be richer materially, but it is richer in following the ways of God because the ways of God are better for us. Let me just ask this. Which is more satisfying to the soul? Things like power, accumulation, authority, recognition, or which is more satisfying to the soul? Things like generosity, forgiveness, humility, service. Which is honestly and truly a richer experience? And we experience the fullness of life when we follow Jesus in his ways. And, as we'll see, we have a richer life in eternity. We move on to the second reason to follow Jesus in true discipleship. Verse 26, for what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is asking rhetorical questions here to force us to think about these things, these ultimate realities. What will a man be profited? In other words, what, what do we really gain? which is ultimately better for us if we should somehow gain all the material riches of the world. They are are ours to enjoy, but in doing so, we lose our soul. What does he mean? To lose our soul, to forfeit our soul. Well, for the unbeliever, it would be to choose the riches of the world over believing in Jesus. But remember, he's speaking to us as believers and as believers, to choose the the, the things of the world, to choose the, the ways of the world over following Jesus in true dedicated discipleship is to impoverish our soul. It's to impoverish our soul, the ways of the world, following the ways of the world instead of following Jesus, impoverishes our soul. And our soul is that which endures, it lasts, it extends through eternity. In other words, following Jesus now enriches our soul now and for eternity. And he asks another rhetorical question, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What is there that you could possibly enjoy in this life that is more important and the well-being of your soul for eternity. If you should gain all the riches of the world, that's what he said. Would 70 years of fame and fortune in this life 
outlast and provide more meaning and satisfaction than 10,000 years or 10 million years in eternity? It's almost like Jesus is challenging us here and saying, put a price tag on the well-being of your soul now and for eternity. And then the third reason to follow Jesus in true discipleship, verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. In case we haven't gotten the point yet, Jesus makes it really clear that we will be judged and rewarded according to our deeds. Now, just to be clear, the disciples at this point did not understand Jesus' death and resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again. That understanding would come later. But what they did understand at this point was that Jesus, as the Son of Man, would somehow appear in glory with the angels and be the judge of all people. Now, for believers, this is not a judgment to determine our salvation, saved or unsaved. It is a judgment to determine our reward, the reward for faithfulness and true discipleship. And it is this that matters for eternity. Well, Jesus knows that he is what he has just told his disciples is difficult. Understanding his death will be challenging. Following a crucified Savior will be hard. Persecution and rejection will be part of it. The commitment for which he asks will be demanding. So knowing this, Jesus now gives the disciples a promise to encourage and give hope. That's what we have in verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some of you, some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, at first glance, I mean, this sounds like Jesus is saying that some of the disciples will not die before they see Jesus as the Son of Man coming to establish his kingdom here on earth. But we know that can't be true because all of the disciples have died and Jesus has not yet come in his kingdom. So what, is, what, what does he mean here? Jesus is referring to the event that is described immediately in the next chapter. Lord willing, we'll look at that the next week next week, that we, that we call the transfiguration. And in this event, some of the disciples, not all of them, I don't know why Jesus only chose a few, didn't choose them all, but some of the disciples are given a glimpse and a preview of Jesus in his glory as he will be revealed when he does come again. And he gives this preview of his glory to encourage them and to give them hope from their perspective at that time, and even from our perspective today, what Jesus has just said may be hard to believe. And so Jesus provides this glimpse and this preview of his glory in which he's transfigured and they see his glory 
He says, you can trust what I say. You can believe it. Because it will happen. And here's a glimpse to show you that it will indeed happen. So let's review. To their horror, shock, and dismay, Jesus announces the divine necessity of his death and resurrection, which they totally miss at this point. It's part of the Father's plan that he be put to death, but the disciples can't understand it and they can't accept it. And because he has not simply come as a ruling and reigning Messiah, but is and will be a crucified Savior, following him is not simply marching in his victory parade. And he says those who follow him must do so with total dedication and total commitment. We must deny ourselves as the one in charge of our life and yield control of our life to Jesus. We must die to the control over our life and die to our own interest and agenda. And we must render the control and direction of our life to Christ. And we follow him in faith and obedience, obeying his word. We must completely, unreservedly, wholeheartedly follow Jesus. Well, this is a big ask of Jesus. He then makes his case that it is well worth it. If we want to hold on to our life and live it our way, we want to go that route, that life is a loss compared to the life that Jesus offers. But if we forsake our agenda for our life and follow Jesus, we experience a richer life now and for eternity. Secondly, Jesus asked rhetorically, what is there in this world that can possibly compare to the well-being of your soul now and in eternity? Is it really a wise investment to gain all that the world has to offer but to impoverish our soul? And thirdly, there is a judgment coming when we will stand before Jesus and give an account of our lives and be rewarded accordingly. And this is what we will take into eternity. And then as a way to strengthen their faith in all that he has said, he will give them a glimpse of his glorious appearing. And so they, and we as well, know that what he said is real. So let's talk about following Jesus. What we have here is really just simply the nuts and bolts of what it means to follow him. First, putting our faith in a crucified and risen Savior that makes no sense to a secular and pagan world. This is where it begins, that confession of faith. And then second, following Jesus with wholehearted dedication, submitting our lives to him, allowing him to set the agenda for our life, allowing his word to be the guiding force in every area, every relationship in our lives. And then thirdly, living by faith and not by sight. This is what following Jesus is really all about. Because we're rejecting the lure and attraction of this world and being determined to follow Jesus, believing, even though we don't see it, we believe that following him is more fulfilling and more rewarding than what the world has to offer.
now and in eternity. We don't always see the reality of this. And so it takes faith to live our lives this way. It takes faith to, to believe that living for eternity is more important than living for the temporary things of this world that bring immediate pleasure and satisfaction and reward. But in living by faith, we, enlist, we invest our lives now in eternal truths and realities, believing that that is true reality. This is the call to follow Jesus to every one of us. The lure of the world is real, and it is constant. And it endlessly pulls us away from following Jesus as we should. So maybe today, you need to evaluate where you are in following him. Maybe there are things you need to make right, need to confess. Maybe, maybe you need to renew your, renew your commitment to follow him. Would you bow with me, please? I'm going to give you three questions to consider. Just remain with your heads bowed, if you would, please. Number one, following Jesus begins with that confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the only Savior of the world. That's where following Jesus begins. Do you know with certainty that you have made that confession of faith? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus alone as your Savior? If you haven't, maybe today's the day that you would come to faith in Jesus. Maybe you've been kind of vague in your thinking about it. You know, trusting, thinking about and trusting some religious happenings, experiences in your past and churches and, and, and such thing. But maybe you don't have the real certainty that you have actually trusted Jesus alone as the Son of God and your Savior to forgive your sins. Come to him today in that way. Second question, if you know that you trust him as your Savior, have you made that decisive commitment to follow him in true discipleship? Here I am, Lord, you've got all of me. Wholeheartedly, with dedication, devotion. You've never come to that point of commitment. Maybe today's the day you begin that, following Jesus in that way. Say, Lord, I want to follow you. I don't know what all it entails, but it matters for eternity. I, want, I don't want my soul to be impoverished now. I don't want my soul to be impoverished for all eternity. I want to follow you. And then thirdly, maybe, <clears throat> maybe you've made that commitment at some time in the past, but 
you know that you've drifted away from it. And you are no longer as serious about following Jesus as you once were. And maybe you know that you need to renew your commitment today. And maybe there are things that you've allowed in your life that you know are not what Jesus wants and you need to confess those and repent. You need to cleanse your life and get on track to follow Jesus again. Make this that day of renewal for you. Renew that commitment to say, Lord, I'm coming back. I was there once. I want to come back. Come back today. Gracious Father, thank you for your word that you've given to us and pray that the Spirit of God would be the one working among us to make clear to us and bring home to us the, the truth of your word. Lord, nothing else is more important than what we've heard today, to follow Jesus. And so accomplish your purposes in the heart of every person here because this speaks to every one of us, Lord. In the Spirit of God, have his way in our hearts. In Jesus' name and for his sake, we pray. Amen.